Legacy Podcasts present Torque, a novel by Ty Drago, performed for you by the author, and featuring music by Nicholas Allen Nelson. The 21st Cog. When Rand, once again as Torque, returned to the flop, he found no name asleep on his hammock. For a while, he silently watched the mysterious Ling, marveling at him. No name sucked his thumb, his other arm hugging his satchel. Just a Ludling, except not. Rand climbed wearily into his own hammock. As he steadied himself within its swinging cradle, he tested his shoulder again. No pain, no stiffness. There probably wouldn't even be a scar. Ainsley had called it a heathen ritual. Rand wondered what a heathen was. But, of course, it wasn't Ainsley's culture shock that replayed in his mind. It wasn't even today's horrors in the black, though it should have been. It was that kiss. Sorry. Rand looked over at the other hammock, where No Name lay, eyeing him. He was talking around the thumb in his mouth. What? Rand asked. I said, I'm sorry. For what? For those people who died. So you were there. I didn't dream it. I was there, No Name replied. Did Lucy see you? No one saw me. No one but you. How can that be? No reply. Who are you? No name took his thumb from his mouth. Are you going to the uppers? Don't change the subject, Rand said. I'm not, the Ludling replied, sliding smoothly off the hammock and onto his feet. You asked me who I am, but the answer is bigger than just saying a name, and it starts with you telling me if you're going to the uppers. Rand sighed. I'm too tired for games. Okay, forget it, the Ludling said. It's your game, after all, not mine. What's that supposed to mean? Again, no reply. Rand asked, How did you even know about the plan to go to the uppers? Were you eavesdropping? That's one word for it, I guess. Are you going to go? Yeah, Rand said. No name studied him with that old look again. As if, in moments, years had somehow piled onto his small round face. It's going to be dangerous. I know. You'll probably end up fighting for your life. Probably. You might have to take someone else's. Nope, Rand said. To save yourself or someone else, you might. Nope, Rand insisted. They have guns and swords. You have a fancy pipe filled with grease and steam cartridges. You're going to be outnumbered and outmatched. Who are you, Rand asked. You know I'm right, No Name said. Yeah. So... You may need a gun and sword of your own. Rand smiled thinly. Actually, Lucy gave me an idea for a different kind of weapon. But putting it together is going to be a little tricky. Want to help? No Name grinned delightedly, a ling once more. Happy to! An hour later, the two of them were navigating the labyrinthine tunnels of the old places. Rand, in Torque's armor, used his pipe lamp sparingly. They could have drawn light runes, but doing so would complicate their chore. So mostly they walked in perfect blackness, with no name leading the way. Rand had given up asking how the Ludling moved so effortlessly in the dark. You sure about this? No name asked him at one point. Nope, Rand replied. How many do you figure you'll need? Three or four. This is risky. Isn't everything? At that, they located the right tunnel. Be sure to make a lot of noise, no name told him. It'll draw them out. Rand flipped the correct switch on his pipe, driving away at least some of the darkness. Stay here, he told the Ludling, who nodded without further comment. He advanced slowly, moving the pipe lamp to and fro. 
Not looking, really. No need to look. If this worked, they'd come to him. And they did. The first grabber attacked from above, clamping its teeth around the shoulder plate of Rand's armor. Instantly, Rand pivoted, catching the eel-like body just behind its head and twisting. The grabber's neck broke with an echoing snap. The creature's slack, lifeless body spilled out of its hole in the ceiling, landing with a wet smack at Rand's feet. That's one, No Name remarked grimly. Rand knelt and took out the shank Lucy had loaned him. This whole thing had been her idea. By the light of his pipe lamp, he sliced open the grabber's underbelly. Blood oozed out, soaking his gloved hands as he felt around inside for the correct internal organ. His stomach rolled over. Fortunately, it was empty, so there wouldn't be much to throw up. You okay? asked No Name. Solid. You look a little green. I'm solid. If you say so. Finally, Rand located the right thing. It felt rock hard, just as Lucy said it would. Got it. Using the shank, he cut out the poison gland. It was small, no bigger than No Name's fist. After examining it under the light and looking for leaks, Rand carefully pocketed it. Then he straightened, took several deep breaths, and did the whole thing again. This time, the attack was from the side wall, and it was a near thing. As the grabber clamped on the Rand's thigh, one of its teeth wormed under his armor and scratched his skin. Rand felt the paralysis eat its way up his leg. He moved quickly, breaking the creature's back and detaching it before falling to one knee. Then he waited for the paralysis to pass before disemboweling the grabber. This time, the nausea wasn't as bad. Two down. The last pair came at him simultaneously and from opposite directions, but No Name shouted out a timely warning, and Rand was able to flatten one skull with his pipe while crushing the other in his fist. There, he said. There, No Name agreed. Rand harvested their poison glands, holding his breath through most of it. By the time he'd finished, his gloved hands were sticky with blood. But he had what he wanted. Thanks for the warning, he told No Name. You didn't need it. Yeah, I did. If I hadn't called out, you'd have just puked on them and that would have deaded them both instantly. Rand groaned. You could tell I was getting sick? Sure. You don't miss a thing, do you? Nope. Speaking of which, so, Lucy kissed you. Rand looked sharply at the Ludling. You weren't there. You know I was. Yeah, in the tunnel after I got shot, Rand said, but not in Root's Chapel. No Name offered a tight, vaguely ironic smile, but he said nothing. You weren't there, Rand pressed. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. I'm getting tired of your riddles. I'm not asking a riddle, No Name said. I'm stating a fact. Lucy kissed you. So? Was it the first time? How's that any of your business? No Name considered this. For now, let's call it friendly curiosity. Rand nearly told the Ludling where he could put his friendly curiosity. But then he remembered those last two grabbers, which, vomit jokes aside, would have nailed him without No Name's alert. Yeah, first time, he said at last. But you've known her for years. All my life, for at least as much of it as I remember. She's the closest thing to family I've ever had. But not like a sister. I've never had a sister, so I can't really compare it to anything, but no. Not like a sister. Like a friend, but closer. Much closer. Yet this was the first time she kissed you. What are you getting at? But naturally, no name answered with a question of his own. Why do you think she did it? Relief, I suppose. It was the first time she'd seen me since my fall down the drop, and she was relieved. No name considered this as well. How'd Ainsley react? You know she was there? Sure. How? No name didn't reply. Who are you? Soon. How'd Ainsley react? 
She seemed more interested in Lucy's healing craft. He almost added, unlike some folks, Ainsley minds her own business. Almost. No Name fell silent. Is that it? Rand asked. Are we done talking about this? For now. Good, because we need to get these glands back to the flop and chop them up. Then we have to get started with the metal shavings. I could use your help with that. When the Ludling replied, his young voice was once again filled with innocent enthusiasm. Happy to. Rand suddenly felt like punching him, but of course he didn't. The 22nd Cog Ainsley headed home after midday. Since Rand was off milking grabbers, a concept that she couldn't quite wrap her head around, Lucy reluctantly served as Ainsley's guide. The lower girl had little to say during their long trek up through the lowers, ignoring all of Ainsley's questions, or, maybe worse, answering her with derisive snorts or condescending laughs. At last they reached the middle, where Ainsley had to suppress a sigh of relief. The market was alive with activity. The market was alive with activity, though almost all the upper folk present wore servant's garb instead of the finer apparel of lords or ladies. Apparently, August Pinkerton's edict that Ainsley not risk a trip down in the lifts had been taken up by others. Mama! The Yancey boys slipped smoothly between two startled upper folk, which earned them a dangerous glare from a nearby keeper. It never paid for lower folk to get too close to their betters. As Ainsley watched, the fellow raised his whistle. Then he glanced nervously up at the ceiling and, to Ainsley's quiet amusement, lowered it again. The twins' faces were flushed and their mouths filled with sweetmeats. Both greeted Ainsley like an old friend, even offering her one of their remaining soft candies. Thanks, Ainsley replied, popping the sweetmeat into her mouth. Time to head back down, Ludlings, Lucy told the boys flatly. Can we visit the Black? one of them asked. Not today, Jad. They both wailed. Why not? Because the keeper shut it down. Oh, Jared remarked. Apparently this was a familiar song. I want both of you to go below and visit Rhea, Lucy told them. What? Jad asked, looking horrified. Why? Jared whined. She's so old. She'll look after you until I come back. Stay with her in her flop. Don't leave it. There's been trouble today. Jad complained. But all Rhea wants to do is tell us stories we've heard before. Do it anyway. But Mama, Jared wailed. Lucy's eyes flashed. Now, Ludlings. The boys lowered their heads. With a final half-hearted wave at Ainsley, they headed off, this time with less spring in their step. Lucy's watchful eyes didn't leave them until they disappeared down a ladder and into the lowers. Ainsley asked, How old is Rhea? She says she's 35, Lucy replied absently. But I think she's older than that and is still hoping to attract the Lud. Oh, Ainsley said. Will the boys do what you said? Will they stay with her? They won't like it, but they'll do it. For a while, anyway. They're good boys. I've got a little brother, but he's younger than them. Lucy glared at her. You think I care about a rich upper lass's rich little brother? Stung, Ainsley said. I get that you hate me, but do you have to hate my five-year-old brother, too? The lower girl didn't reply. I didn't make the machine, Lucy, Ainsley pressed. No, you just benefit from it. Yet here I am, trying to do some good. I don't ken what you're doing here. Maybe it's some kind of guilty penance thing. A rich upper lady trying to sleep better at night. Look, Ainsley said a little sharply, I'm not here risking everything because I'm some spoiled upper's brat looking for a cause. I'm here because my eyes got opened and I started seeing the machine for what it really is. I'm here to help. Lucy was unmoved. 
Well, you can't do that if you don't get your clothes back, so come on. Then she stalked off, leaving Ainsley to follow after her. Or not. Ainsley followed. Minutes later, they reached the dresser shop where Ainsley had left the borrowed maid's dress. But before entering, Lucy caught her arm. Let me ask you something. Go ahead, Ainsley replied shortly, still stinging. If this whole vindicator thing blows up and you and Rand get caught, what'll happen to you? Ainsley shuddered at the thought. My father would pitch a fit. Uh-huh. And? And I don't know. I'd get punished. Severely punished. As Lucy stepped in close, Ainsley had to struggle to keep from wincing at the smell coming off the lower girl. She reminded herself that bathing simply wasn't available to these people, but that didn't keep her eyes from watering. Lucy said behind clenched teeth, Severely punished, huh? Well, Randall get hanged. You can that, right? Hanged. I won't let that happen, Ainsley said. The lower girl laughed bitterly. You? You won't be able to do a thing. After all this, you still think there's such a thing as justice in this machine? Lower folk are only disposable labor, upper lass. Every ling learns that lesson young. We're here to work until we die. And if we dare say, think, or imagine any other future, we get whipped or deaded. Ainsley felt her face flush. Lucy, I don't expect you to ken this. How could you? And I don't expect you to protect Rand. When he gets one of his noble ideas in his head, it's there to stay. Here's the thing, though. I've been partnered with him since we were both younger than the Yanceys. These days, he thinks he's old enough to take care of himself, but that's dung. Look at what happened today. He'd have died if I hadn't healed him. You love him, Ainsley whispered. Of course I love him, Lucy snapped. And because I do, I'll help him whether he wants me to or not. She paused, took a breath, and added, Which is why I'm coming with you. Ainsley blinked. With me? Where? Where do you think? Understanding dawned. To the uppers. You can't. Sure I can, Lucy replied. You visited us. Why can't I visit you? Ainsley almost listed a hundred reasons why not, but stopped herself. Lucy knew the risks, probably better than Ainsley did. But she was going anyway, for Rand's sake. It won't be easy, Ainsley said hesitantly. You managed to make it down to the black. And look how that turned out. Lucy said, I can pull it off. That's what I thought, Ainsley told her. All I need is the right clothes, fancy clothes like you wear. Ainsley said, Fancy? I borrowed my maid's clothing to help me get past the keepers at the top of the lifts. Your maid, Lucy echoed, her tone unreadable. Ainsley nodded. You have a maid. Once again, Ainsley had to catch herself. She'd come close to saying, of course I have a maid, to someone who'd never used a working toilet. Instead, she replied, that's not really important right now, is it? Lucy eyed her. I guess not. But the trader will have other maid's clothes, right? Something I could wear? That way we could be two maids going up in the lift. Ainsley considered that. The lower girl's unwashed hair would be a problem, but a hooded cloak would cover it well enough. And of course she'd need proper shoes, but as long as they stayed together and Lucy didn't talk to anyone. All right, I can buy you some maid's clothing. She half expected the lower girl to balk at such upper's charity, even from her, but Lucy simply nodded as if this were the most obvious statement in the world. Just don't think this means I owe you anything, upper girl. I may be a beggar and a bowels rat, but I'm no middler. The shopkeeper was welcoming, pleased to see Ainsley and happy to return the clothes she'd kept for her. But her reaction to Ainsley's request that Lucy be fitted for a dress, shoes, and cloak were met with more resistance, even a little fear. 
A few silver coins, however, quickly swept aside her qualms, and ten minutes later the two girls emerged from the dresser's tent wearing maid's garb. What's a middler? Ainsley asked. Lucy, who couldn't seem to stop touching the soft fabric of her new dress, gave her a hard, belligerent look. It's one of the names we have for a lower dunghole, traitors and factory foremen usually, who side with the upper folk over their own. Want to hear some of the other names? No thanks, Ainsley replied, thinking of the owner of the sweetmeat shop. Stop fussing with your clothes and let's go. Lucy caught her arm. Before we do this, upper lady, you need to know something. All right, Ainsley replied warily. Lucy said, if this whole thing goes bad, before you get severely punished and Rand and I get hanged, the last thing in this life I'm going to do is cut your throat. For emphasis, she held up a makeshift knife, like the one the Yancey boys and the Stainers and the Black had carried. Ice water suddenly filled Ainsley's veins. Lucy, I told you, I'm trying to help. I can that. I don't care. If we die, you die. Remember that. Ainsley swallowed. I'll remember. Solid, the lower girl replied, and with that she marched off in the direction of the lift platform, leaving Ainsley standing outside the dresser's shop, dumbfounded and trembling. The 23rd Cog The uppers were warm beneath the sunlit sky. Even so to Ainsley, this world of buildings, homes, and shops of shining steel and glittering gold seemed suddenly darker. The people in the plaza were all healthy and smiling, soon to dine that evening on chicken, beef, or pork, each animal having been factory-raised and slaughtered by drudges who would never taste its meat. Then this would be washed down by wine, squeezed from factory-grown grapes, and stomped by lower folk who were punished if they so much as licked their fingers. All of it so familiar. All of it so wrong. However, as conflicted as Ainsley's reactions were, Lucy's were crippling. The lower girl hadn't spoken since the lift had begun its mile-high climb. She'd simply stared mutely as the walls of the drop slid past, the only sound the mechanical clacking of the elevator's gears. Then, when the lift car's windows had filled with natural light and the doors opened onto the platform, Lucy's eyes widened and she retreated into a corner of the lift. As scowling, impatient keepers looked on, Ainsley had hurriedly coaxed the trembling girl to her feet mumbling some half-baked excuse about her having a nervous condition. She then ushered Lucy Stamper out into the first sunshine the lower girl had ever seen. It's all right, Ainsley told her, guiding her across the broad expanse of the market plaza. Take deep breaths. But Lucy didn't seem to hear. The lower girl gaped, slack-jawed at the towering buildings, the gleaming metal streets and walkways, the mech carriages and other devices that chirped and rang and clattered all around them. She took in the blue sky overhead, peppered with clouds, and stared at the afternoon sun until Ainsley feared she'd go blind. They skipped a public carriage and walked to the Pinkerton estate in an effort to spare Lucy more trauma. Even so, the lower girl wouldn't speak, and Ainsley had to lead her by the hand past the gates, through the garden, and around to the gleaming steel door set into the rear of the big house. Ainsley wondered if she should have prepared the lower girl somehow. But what words could possibly describe the chasm-like differences between the top and bottom of the machine? After all, the dark reality of the lowers had hit her almost like a physical force. What must it be like for someone who's known nothing but darkness to suddenly set foot in the light? Dress like this, we'd better go in through the kitchen entrance, Ainsley told the lower girl. Don't say anything to anyone. Your accent will give you away. 
She waited for an acknowledgement, but Lucy didn't even look at her. So, with a nervous sigh, Ainsley opened the door. She was both relieved and surprised to find the kitchen and pantry empty. At this hour, dinner preparations were usually in full swing, but Eunice and her staff were elsewhere, and the long countertop stood barren, the stoves cold. The dining room, library, and front parlor were also empty. The whole house, in fact, felt silent. The only sound, the tick, tick, tick of various clocks. Something wasn't right. She led Lucy upstairs to her own room, which Emma had tidied up in Ainsley's absence, and sat the lower girl down on the bed. Lucy ran her hands over the duvet that covered the mattress. Then she bounced up and down experimentally. Lucy, Ainsley said carefully, I know all this is a lot to take in, but I need you to focus. The lower girl gave her a look of such blistering disgust that Ainsley actually staggered back a step. There was hatred in that look, a naked loathing as black and seemingly bottomless as the drop itself. It made Ainsley suddenly remember the knife Lucy carried in the folds of her new dress. I've heard stories about life in the uppers, the lower girl said in a low, dangerous tone. But nothing I could believe. After all, none of the Bowles rats who got arrested and dragged, dragged up here ever came back. So how could anyone really know what it's like? Ainsley began, Lucy, how many people live in this flop? It's a house, not a flop. Whatever. How many? My family and our staff. Lucy's eyes bored into her. Staff? You mean servants? Ainsley hesitated, then she nodded. All upper folk. Ainsley nodded again. How many altogether? Lucy demanded. Eighteen. Eighteen, the lower girl echoed. Well, I come from a place where that many people live in a space no bigger than this room, and those are the lucky ones. Thousands more don't live anywhere at all. I know. I'm sorry. Sure you are. This is your room? Yes. For what? Ainsley looked at her. I don't understand. What do you do in this room? I sleep. I get dressed. And the other Luds who live in this house. Do all eighteen of them have rooms like this? Her bitterness had a razor's edge. More or less, Ainsley said. Look, I get it. You see all this and you can't believe how unfair it is. Hating me must seem like the most natural thing in the world. Lucy sneered. Finally, we agree on something, upper lady. But this time, Ainsley refused to flinch. My mother wanted to change things. She championed reform in the lower machine, made a lot of enemies. Most upper folk like things just the way they are, but she did it anyway. Now here I am, risking everything I've got to do the same thing. I can't help being born in the uppers, but at least I'm trying to make things right. Lucy didn't reply, so Ainsley decided to go for broke. Now, given that, do you think maybe you could drop the self-righteous indignation for two seconds and work with me? One corner of Lucy's mouth twitched. Then she sighed. Yeah, that's solid. So tell me, fellow revolutionary, where are the other Luds who live in this fine house? We didn't see anyone coming up here. I don't know. It's strange. Someone suddenly knocked on the door. Ainsley jumped, even going so far as to let out a nervous yelp before asking, Who is it? It's Frederick, miss, the butler's voice replied through the thin steel. Your father would like to see you in his study right away. Ainsley looked at Lucy, who wore a dark expression that seemed to mix defiance with alarm. Then the lower girl did, in fact, pull her knife from inside the folds of her dress. I'll get behind the door, she whispered. Then you let him in. No, Ainsley exclaimed softly. This is a good man. He's just doing his job. 
So are the keepers, Lucy replied unmoved. Besides, Ainsley told her, he won't come in until I give him permission. Then Frederick made a liar out of her by turning the handle and pushing the door open. Gasping, Ainsley whirled around and stepped between the butler and the lower girl, as if she could somehow hide Lucy behind her. Frederick, why would you even think of... Her words died away. The butler's right eye had been blackened, the skin around it so badly swollen that the lid was nearly shut. I'm sorry, miss, but I'm afraid it's... urgent. Where's the rest of the staff? Everyone's gathered in Lord Pinkerton's study. When it became apparent that you'd returned home, I was sent up here to collect you. Ainsley took in the way Frederick's shoulders had slumped, and how his hands, hanging at his sides, trembled. Gammon or Baird? she asked. Both, miss. And keepers? Quite a few. Where are my father and brother? In the study with the rest, he replied, his look of desperate worry deepening. Please, you need to come. I'm not going, Lucy said to Ainsley's back, and you shouldn't either. You've got to ken what's happened. And Ainsley did. Fear clutched her heart like an icy fist. They came because of me, didn't they? She asked Frederick. Yes, miss. I'm sorry. No, I'm the one who should be sorry. You, your wife, the whole household is in trouble because of me. Of course I'll come with you. The butler nodded, looking somehow both sickened and relieved. One thing, though, Ainsley said. You have to promise not to mention my friend here. Just say that I was alone when you came for me. Frederick looked at Lucy, who returned his gaze coolly. I don't see anyone, miss. Ainsley said, thanks. Don't go, Lucy told her. I have to. If you were me, what would you do? Lucy said nothing, though she nodded. Frederick remarked, I might suggest to anyone in this room who isn't Miss Ainsley that the window behind her opens onto one of the gables. From there, an agile young person could conceivably climb down a drainpipe to the rear garden. But any such person would do well to be careful. Eyes might be watching. Ainsley and Lucy both looked at him. That is, the butler added stiffly, if anyone else were here, which, of course, they aren't. Come along, Miss Ainsley. With that, he turned and headed down the hallway toward the main stairs. Ainsley paused to look helplessly back at Lucy. Go, the lower girl told her. I'll figure something out. Rand's coming at nightfall. I'll try to meet up with you both at the drop. Go be with your family. After a pause, she added, Good luck. You too, Ainsley said. Then she followed after Frederick. The butler let her down the stairs and around the corner to her father's study door. Neither spoke. Ainsley's stomach churned. She felt like crying, but didn't. Frederick knocked politely, professionally, on the study's polished metal door, the way he would on any normal day. Come, said a voice, not her father's. Frederick opened the door and stepped inside. Stealing herself, Ainsley followed. The study was well lit, angled sunshine pouring through the overhead skylight. Its warmth fell across the paneled walls and fine furniture and illuminated the faces of people. A lot of people. The entire household staff had been lined up in front of a wall of bookshelves. All of them looked terrified. Some wore bruises. Some were openly crying. A double brace of keepers paced menacingly in front of them. They wielded steel batons that looked like they'd been used. A lot. Every time a keeper glanced their way, the servants flinched. I did this to them, she thought miserably. Ainsley, Gerard called. Her little brother stood with their father on the room's far side, near the desk. August Pinkerton held the little boy close. Two more keepers guarded them, though Ainsley was relieved to see that neither her father nor brother seemed injured. 
at least not so far. Directly in front of her, looking imposing in full uniform, stood Commandant Gammon. His dark eyes, as dark as Rand's, almost scorched her with their barely contained anger. Beside him, smaller but more calculating, was Proctor Baird. The Proctor wore an expression of gentle sorrow, as if deeply disappointed. However, it was August Pinkerton's expression that cut the most sharply. Numb shock, as if he still couldn't quite believe what was happening. But in his expression, Ainsley read no betrayal, only fear. No, not fear. Terror. Ainsley, he whispered. Every fiber of her being wanted to run to him. But the days of her father fixing her mistakes were over. She betrayed the promise she'd made to him in this very room just last night. She'd been too focused on her mission, too firmly set in her moral conviction and schoolgirl's naivete. I'm sorry, she said. Where's the other girl? Gammon asked, glaring at Frederick. The butler returned his gaze calmly, as if the commandant had just asked for tea. My lord, there was no one else in Miss Ainsley's room. Don't lie to me, butler, Gammon snarled. Do you need another reminder? Leave him alone, Ainsley snapped. Then, surprising herself, she stepped between Frederick and the commandant. Your problem's with me. Ainsley, her father warned. Don't. Gammon slapped her, hard. The blow knocked her to the rug, the same rug on which Keeper Reynolds' lifeless body had landed. For a moment, Ainsley lay there, two days to move, one half of her face burning. Whatever illusions she had about talking her way out of this vanished. Get up, girl, the commandant said. Ainsley, Gerard wailed. Clutching his son more tightly, August Pinkerton exclaimed, Gammon, for pity's sake, she's a child. She's a traitor, the big man replied. Then waving away the keepers, he reached down, grabbed Ainsley's arm in a vice grip, and pulled her roughly to her feet. Now, tell me where the other girl is. Ainsley's lower lip trembled, so she bit it, but she said nothing. Gammon's other hand drew back. Henry, the proctor said, the first time the woman had spoken. Hearing it, the commandant hesitated. He lowered his hand and released his grip on Ainsley. She swayed a little, dazed from the slap, but stayed on her feet. Baird said to her, I was just telling your father how much I regret these measures, but you've been walking an unwise and destructive path, child. Ainsley stared at her. Then beat me! Arrest me! But leave my family and my household out of this! Ainsley, no, her father declared. But she and the proctor both ignored him. Baird said, I'm afraid we're past that point now, my dear. You were seen, Ainsley. We've been watching you since the moment you and that other creature rode the lift up from the middle market. Both of you dressed as maids, which is distasteful enough. But did you really bring, as Commandant Gammon insists, a bowels rat into our machine? Of course not, Ainsley spat, throwing as much outrage as she could into the lie. The proctor blinked. Then who was she? The maid of a friend of mine, Ainsley replied, fighting to keep her voice steady. I borrowed her today because I didn't want to go down to the market alone. Then why not take your own maid, Gammon demanded. She glared at him, astonished that she could keep such a tight hold on her fear. Because I was disobeying my father by going at all. I couldn't very well bring one of his employees along, now could I? I see, Baird said thoughtfully. We'll need the name of the maid, of course, as well as that of the friend who loaned her to you. No, Ainsley replied. The commandant's face reddened further, but the proctor merely said, No, I'm not getting anyone else in trouble. The maid had nothing to do with this. Is she still in the house? Ainsley shook her head. She never came in with me. I took her around the back to the kitchen door, but I didn't want to risk her being seen by one of the servants, so I thanked her and told her to go home. 
My men would have seen her leave the garden, Gammon insisted. Perhaps, the proctor remarked. Then to Ainsley, Why did you disobey your father and go down to the middle market? Potential answers rolled through Ainsley's mind, everything from, I'm a teenager, it's how we're wired, to a sullen silence that said more or less the same thing. But instead, she met the woman's eyes and replied, Because I wanted to understand the machine I live in. Baird regarded her appraisingly. And do you? Ainsley ignored the warning in her father's eyes. Better than I did a week ago. Then enlighten me, the proctor suggested amiably, as though they were chatting over cake. What is this newfound understanding? The lowers make, Ainsley replied. The uppers take. Exactly so, the woman said. That's the natural order. We treat the lower folk like animals, Ainsley exclaimed, unable to help herself. Not at all. We treat our animals better, as we should. You see, our animals are a precious resource. We require them for food and clothing. The same is true for our crops, all of which are grown in the middle factories. They have to be. If we farmed up here on the roof of the machine, we'd run out of room. You see, Ainsley, while the lower folk occupy dozens of levels, we have only this one, the one in the sunshine. So we must utilize the lowers and its denizens. What's the point of this? Gammon demanded. Lady Proctor, you know what she needs to tell us. Be patient, Henry, Ainsley said, throwing caution to the winds. The keepers kill the lower folk. The proctor shook her head. Only in self-defense. That's a lie. Is it, child? How so? Ainsley's heart hammered behind her ears. She looked at her family. She looked at Frederick, who joined his wife Eunice in line with the rest of the servants. All of them gazed helplessly back at her. Then she faced Baird again, loathing the woman to the very bottom of her soul. She wants me to admit the whole of what I did today, Ainsley thought bitterly. So she didn't reply. The proctor finally said, You were in the black market when the keepers rousted it, and you were the girl in maid's garb who was seen helping Torque to escape. The woman smiled then, actually smiled. Weren't you? Ainsley said nothing. Then you returned to the uppers, hoping no one would be the wiser, Baird continued. Except you brought one of them with you. You see, we know, child. We know Torque is really a lower boy called Rand Roberts wearing stolen armor. What we don't know is where he is or where he'll be. But I'm rather certain that you do. No, Ainsley said. Lying, Gammon snarled. Ainsley, listen to me. I understand that you think you've been doing good, just as your mother thought she was doing good when she stirred up trouble. But the truth is that the lower folk are exactly what we need them to be. If we were to elevate their status at all, we would find ourselves unable to feed both them and ourselves. It may seem harsh, but the machine is a closed system. Nothing exists beyond our walls, at least nothing knowable. So we live or die here. The status quo must be maintained at all cost. Torque threatens that status quo. So at the moment do you. Now, I'm giving you this opportunity to tell me freely everything you know. Otherwise, the consequences will be dire. Ainsley had been listening to this pretty speech with mounting horror. The wall of rationalization Proctor Edith Baird had erected around herself seemed as high and thick as those of the machine itself. But had she been so different? Yes, I was in the black, she said. Yes, I saw Torque. But I don't have any idea where he is. Gammon advanced, but was held back by a look from Baird, as if he were an attack dog on a leash. You're a traitor to your class, he growled. Now, tell us about the lower girl. Ainsley didn't reply. 
She's not a priority, the proctor said. We'll find her eventually. The far more important question is Torque. She faced Ainsley again. Last chance, child. What's Torque's plan? It doesn't matter, someone said. Every head turned toward August Pinkerton. The lord of this captured house still gripped his young son, though his face was now set in a look of hard conviction. Ainsley's right. About all of it. We've been living on the backs of the innocent for too long. If Torque is coming and he does have a plan, then more power to him. What are you saying, August? Baird demanded, sounding actually scandalized. I'm saying let them have the uppers. Don't you understand? I've seen the Vindicators, and I know all too well why you constructed them. But you're missing the point of them, the true opportunity. All this talk of a closed system and resource conservation no longer matters. Proctor, don't you see? You've given us the means to leave the machine, to expand our civilization to the broader world. What are you babbling about? Gammon demanded. There is no broader world. Of course there is, August Pinkerton insisted. This nowhere nonsense is just that. Concocted by the giant leadership to keep people complacent. But you know the old stories, the ones they don't teach in schools anymore. There's a whole world out there, and Project Vindicator can let us finally reach it. It can set us free. A heavy silence settled over the crowd. Even the keepers seemed stunned by the prospect. Finally, after what felt like a hundred years, Proctor Baird said tentatively, August, I... But before she could finish, Gammon drew his pistol and shot Ainsley's father between the eyes. Blood splattered Gerard's hair and face. Brain matter and bits of skull bounced off the nearby desk. The boy never moved. Henry! the proctor exclaimed. The commandant ignored her. Ainsley screamed and rushed forward, only to have Gammon seize her around the waist. As she stared in horror, August Pinkerton's lifeless body toppled backward and landed heavily on the study floor. Across the room, the servants began wailing. Frederick started forward, but the keepers leaped on him instantly, beating him down with their batons. Enough, the proctor called. The servants quieted. The keepers pulled the bloodied butler to his feet. Eunice tried to tend to her husband, but his guards wouldn't let her close. So much violence, Baird said. She looked around the room, badly shaken, but recovering. And all because of one naive girl and her misguided loyalties. She faced Ainsley again, who hung in Gammon's grip, all the fight having bled out of her as surely as the blood bled from her father's ruined skull. Ainsley, the proctor said, look at me. And with an effort, Ainsley obeyed, though Gammon's strong arm remained clamped around her waist. What is Torque going to do? Baird asked. Tell us, Gammon said flatly, or I'll have one of my men shoot your little brother in the face. You're monsters, Ainsley whispered hoarsely. Both of you. We are what the machine needs us to be, Baird replied. Gammon barked, kill the boy. No, Ainsley wailed. No, please, I'll tell you. And sobbing, she did. She told them everything. Rand walks straight into a trap in the next episode of Torque by Ty Drago. If you can't bear the wait, the full novel is available in paperback and ebook formats on Amazon.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>